You should always run a company as if it will last forever. And yet you should also strive constantly to maximize its value, building in the qualities that allow it to be sold at any moment for what the highest price buyers are paying for businesses like yours. As an entrepreneur who thought my job was to build the top line of revenue in my company and it was okay that I was the you know the, the rainmaker and the driver of my business, to hear him say, yeah, you got the right skills. Like sales and marketing is, is a great set of skills to have, but you, you've got to invest them in building the value of your business, not finding the next customer. All of you have the right skills. You're selling the wrong product. You've got to hire salespeople to sell your product or service. Your job is to sell your company. We stand today. The business method with a shadow. The business method. The business method podcast. The business method podcast featuring Chris Reynolds. Entrepreneurs, systems, methods, tools, and tactics. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, people of all ages, I'm your host, Chris Reynolds, and welcome to the Business Method Podcast, a podcast featuring over 500 episodes of entrepreneurs and high-performance experts dissecting their different methods, tools, and strategies so we can apply them to our businesses and lives. We've been fortunate enough to interview some of the leading experts in business and performance today. The billionaire CEO of Priceline, Jeff Hoffman, the CEO of Chipotle, Monty Moran, world's top big wave surfer, Laird Hamilton, the first black woman to build a billion dollar company, Janet Halroyd, world's top investment expert, Jim Rogers, and the list goes on and on. All of these guests you can find on the podcast backlog using Apple, Spotify, YouTube, Google, and any podcast app you prefer. Also, you guys, have you started listening to our micro high performance episodes yet? We've taken the most powerful tips and tricks from over 400 interviews that our guests have shared on how to optimize their own personal performance, and we've made them into digestible micro-podcast episodes that are just two to 10 minutes long. We publish these on Monday and Friday each week, and those episodes are labeled as HP number 123456 and so on. Those episodes are live now, and they're designed for you to consume some quick, high-quality content while you only have a few minutes to spare. So be sure to subscribe to the Business Method Podcast on your favorite app so you can get those delivered as soon as they're live. And now, let's hop into today's episode. The Business Method. Hey listeners, real quick before we get started, I wanted to tell you about our trips and adventures for entrepreneurs. We have live events in different locations around the world, luxury trips to the Caribbean, adventurous trips to knock off your bucket list, and of course some private business events as well. If you're an entrepreneur, we'd love to have you join us. Make sure to subscribe to our newsletter at thebusinessmethod.com to stay updated. And for those established entrepreneurs out there that want to be involved in a community that is curated specifically for seasoned business minds, then we have a group for you. Inside this group, we have private live events in different locations around the world specifically for our members. We get those members in a place where they can connect, collaborate, and grow their companies faster just by being around one another. We also organize private podcast viewings and Q&A sessions with some of the world's top entrepreneurs like Jim Rogers, Alex Hermosi, the CEO of Chipotle, the marketing mind behind GoPro. And as a member of our group, you'll get to hop on calls with our podcast guests regularly to ask them any questions you want. And the last benefit is access to private world-class masterminds that are specifically curated for whatever challenges you're going through at the time. Our purpose with this private community is to help you expand your network, connect with some of the brightest minds in business today, and help one another overcome business challenges faster. You can learn more about our community at thebusinessmethod.com. Remember, subscribe to stay updated. And now, let's hop into today's show. The Business Method Podcast featuring Chris Reynolds. 
Today on the podcast, we have the best-selling author of the legendary book, Built to Sell. Oh, man, that makes me feel old. Legendary. (laughs) I'm like, they trot the guy out from like in the skating arena where he he was in the NHL like in the 1940s. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Well, you just hit legendary status at a younger age. That's all, John. You're you're the exception to the rule. Most of us are going to hit it probably in our 50s, and you hit it pre Yeah, so (laughs) it is a legendary book. Like I have heard about it in the entrepreneur scene for a long, long, long time. And it's a book that's been helping thousands and thousands of entrepreneurs all over the world build their businesses. So he's also the host of Built to Sell Radio, a podcast ranked by Forbes is one of the world's t- uh, world's 10 best podcasts for business owners. He started and exited four companies himself, including one acquired by a public company. He is the business model expert sought out by the likes of Tim Ferriss, CBS Inc. Magazine for his proven methodology in adding millions upon millions of dollars to the value of businesses globally. His name is John Warlow, and he is on the podcast today. Today, we're going to talk about his book, you guys, his methodologies, how to remove yourself from your company, and why every entrepreneur should set out to build a business worth selling, even if you decide never to sell it. John, how are you doing, my friend? I'm good, Chris. How are you? Good. Thank you, thank you, thank you. And you're calling in from the lovely land of Toronto today, I hear? I am. It's kind of gloomy here today, actually, but yes, it's a... It's a beautiful city with lots of diverse eating options, but it is cold in the winter. Yes. So I read this book, Built to Sell, and I'd heard about it on the entrepreneur scene for a very long time. Never, never decided to read it until uh, we got you booked for the podcast. And this book in the past 24 hours has become on, has gotten on my top 15 best business books to read. Wow. Yeah. And, and, and there's a reason for it. It's because it's really damn good. And you've done a good job creating this. And I think you published it in 2011. But the thing is, yeah. yeah, the thing is, you guys, is I read it in about six hours. So it's an easy read. I started Monday evening. Today is Wednesday morning. And I read it in that time. It's an easy read. And it follows the storyline about an individual that wants to build a well has a company that he is just absolutely engulfed in that could not run without him and he wants to start to build a company that he can sell and he has a mentor that he works with and in the book john does a really good job of creating a structure of how to create a business to sell and then also a bunch of really really good tips and the thing i found so powerful john was that um building a company to sell is beginning a business with the end in mind, or at least finding the end in mind. And too many entrepreneurs in the world have really got to the point where they're 10 years into their career and they have never structured a business with the end in mind. And so if you have the end in mind, like you talk about in Built to Sell, entrepreneurs that start out reading this book, as opposed to reading it five, 10 years down the road, can save a lot of time, a lot of headache, and a lot of money, and a lot of stress, I would think. So I'd just like to talk a bit John, about why you decided to write this book and then where kind of the process of you becoming an entrepreneur where you felt like comfortable enough to write the book Built to Sell. Yeah, really. I mean, it's, it's it was from my own life experiences over four different businesses, all in this kind of service category where ultimately they were dependent on me in some way, shape or form. And, and some of them were like pretty good business. I, I was in a market research business 
which was pretty good size. We had um, five or six million dollars in revenue. Uh, your profitability would have been like 25, 30% uh, before tax. So it was like a good business. And we had clients, uh, Microsoft and IBM and JP Morgan Chase, the sort of brand name clients. And I sort of walked around thinking that one day my business is going to be valuable because of our client list. Because that's what everyone told me. Wow, you work with all these great clients. It's going to be valuable. And I got to a point where uh, we wanted to, my wife and I wanted to move. And, and so we decided to sell the company. And, and I took it to a M&A guy in Toronto. His name's Perry Miele. And I said, what do you think it's worth? And I was like, kind of rubbing my hands together thinking, man, this is going to be great. I can't wait to hear the number. And he's like, well, before I answer that, let me ask you a couple of questions. I'm like, shoot. He says, okay, well, like who does the research? And I'm like, well, I'm involved in some of the research. And he says, okay, well, who does the selling? And I'm like, it's these big clients. Like I got to show up for those meetings. Uh-huh. And he said, well, I, I don't have, I can't sell your company. And I'm like, what do you mean you can't sell my company? It's I've got profits. And he's like, no, no, there's nothing to sell here. It's just you. And he gave me the cold shower, which was that if the business was dependent on me, there's nothing I could sell. And uh, I left that meeting feeling like an inch high. <laughs> and, and it inspired like, you know, a lot of change. And ultimately that business was acquired by a public company years later, but not after kind of totally retransforming the business, like basically starting from scratch and redoing the entire thing. Yeah. And I think that experience among others kind of inspired me a little bit to write it. Yeah. It makes sense. And ironically, maybe not so ironically, John, uh, your story sounds a little bit like the guy in this book, the character in this book. <laughs> yeah, it's, I mean, I'm not Alex Stapleton. It's, but it is an amalgam of a lot of life experiences I've had, as well as mentors that, that I've had uh, that play a big role. We also, in that company, that market research business, we had, um, like we interviewed 10,000 business owners a year to do research on behalf of these big clients. So I got a chance to really understand what, a lot of entrepreneurs think about. And, and at the time, and still to this day, I think a lot of us focus on external metrics. Like we think about the Inc. 5000 list or mm-hmm. you know, some revenue target. We want to hit a million, five million, 10 million, whatever the number is. And, and I think I was the same. I, I focused on the same thing. Oh, I want to get into EO. Well, what do you got to be to be, oh, got to have a million in sale. Okay, so that's now the new bogey. And, and I think what it, it does us a disservice in many cases because you know, ultimately, you know, revenue is kind of vanity, right? And, yeah. and ultimately value is sanity. Like building a company of value is, is what makes the difference. I, I, I interviewed recently a guy named Rob Walling. Have you ever had Rob on the show? Rob Walling? Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. We had him on the show a few years ago. Awesome. So he started drip, right? Yeah. Sold it to lead pages and he was absolutely fanatical about building drip in the right way. And I think he got it to a couple million in sales. So this is not a huge company, like, you know, maybe a dozen employees at the time. Mm-hmm. And he was looking at offers, if memory serves, kind of in the nine to 12 times revenue. Wow. Like not times EBITDA, times revenue. <laughs> like unbelievable, right? Wow. But, but he was focused not on, on like, how big can I make drip? It was really focused on how can I make this the best product own the niche that he wanted to own and it it became incredibly valuable. So I think that's a, 
there's some there's some kind of lessons in there, I think, about focusing on value as opposed to revenue. Value and the internal workings of the company as opposed to the external measurements like getting on Forbes or getting an EO or sometimes even, you know, the revenue mark, like the, the systems and processes inside of a company are more important than that, right? Yeah, there's certainly the ingredients to get there. Um, you know, I know Dan Sullivan, the strategic coach, talks a lot about sort of have front stage, backstage. And yeah. what he means by that is like, the front stage, you know, theatrical performance is what the audience sees, right? So for you, you know, your customers experience the front stage, right? But in order to make the front stage magical, there's got to be a backstage, right? There's mm-hmm. someone working the lights and someone's working the orchestra pit. And so really, really thinking about the backstage, choreographing, creating your standard operating procedures, doing all that jazz that makes your business kind of hum, that's important so that the front stage experience can be one that's memorable. Yeah. I I outlined a paragraph in here that I thought was really powerful in your book. And it wasn't written by you. I think it was in the foreword. And it says, you should always run a company as if it will last forever. And yet you should also strive constantly to maximize its value, building in the qualities that allow it to be sold at any moment for the highest price buyers are paying for for, or what the highest price buyers are paying for businesses like yours. And I I love that being somebody that studies a lot of brain science, like we're giving our prefrontal cortex, we're given our prefrontal cortex for a reason it's to plan, but yet so many of us entrepreneurs don't plan. Like we don't map things out. We don't think about, Oh, we think about the next three years, maybe if we're lucky. Right. And what we should be thinking about, what will really help us as entrepreneurs is building a company as it, it's going to be a hundred year company or building a company that is is always focusing, like you said, the value and the qualities that you need for it to be sold at any time, even if you decide not to. And I thought that was just a really powerful paragraph in, in the book. And it highlights, I think, the, the key essential baseline of the mindset I think a lot of entrepreneurs should focus on. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I, I give talks occasionally, like I'll, I'll be brought into like an EO chapter and I'll give a talk and, and I'll start by saying, okay, how many of you guys want to sell your company? You know, raise your hand. Everybody, <laughs> like nobody's right? hand goes up in the air. Like literally maybe one person in the quarter will have the courage to put up their hand. Yeah. And then I'll ask a different question, which is, all right, how many of you would like to know you could sell? if and when you're ready. And then like every hand goes up in the air. Yeah. And of course the difference is just semantics to men people. It's just a word or two, but it's huge difference. And I, Bo, who wrote that forward, you quoted from Bo Burlingham, uh, who wrote Finish Big and, and, and Small Giants and a lot of other books. His point was like, you don't have to want to sell to want to build a business to sell. Like that's a different thing. And I think that's a huge part of what I talk about is, is you don't have to sell, but you should build it so that the value of your asset is increasing. And again, when we think about our own lives, like, you know, when, when you hear about a house that sold on your street and you own a home, you're going to be curious about what that home sold for. Why is it? Cause you want to move? No, probably not. But you'd like to know the value of your home is going up in lockstep. Of course it's, it's, it's the same idea. It's, it's that you really, uh, you don't have to want to sell to want to build a more valuable company. Yeah. There's another paragraph I, I just want to outline that I think is really good for the mindset of entrepreneurs here to understand this concept. It's build your business to have option strategy as opposed to an exit strategy. And a lot of people, I think, get this flipped. 
The idea is that uh, you have as many choices in the future as possible. When you follow an option strategy, you can build systems and a management team around you so that if a buyer comes along or you decide it's the right time to get out, you have a sellable business. Yeah. Most entrepreneurs hear the word exit and they want to puke. Like it's, it's the, yeah. you know, it's, it's like death, right? It's like, yeah, okay, great. We're <laughs> going to talk about my exit strategy. Sounds like fun. It's horrible. It's like buying life insurance. Nobody wants to talk about their exit plan. Right. Yeah. And, and I think that's very natural. We're creative individuals by nature and we want to build and we don't want to tear things apart. And so, yeah, an option strategy is exactly that. It's like build it. So you've got all the cards at the poker table, right? You could sell it. You could bring in a management team. You could sell a, a share, like a portion of it to a private equity group. You could bring in, uh, you know, majority recapitalization, which is generally when you sell more than half the company or a minority recapitalization when you just take a little bit of money off the table and keep the majority of the shares. All these options are open if it's a company you could sell. Yeah. And if it's like I had, which was a company that was dependent on me, frankly, none of these options are open. So it's a big, big... I think important strategies, I think options as opposed to exit. Yeah. Hey, real quick to the listeners out there, I want to ask you something. What are you doing to optimize your day-to-day performance and productivity levels? You know, guys, we talk about this a lot on the podcast, and we're always trying to learn more and more about how each and every one of us can optimize our performance. The reason why I'm asking you is because today our show is sponsored by the good folks at Seas. Seas is a mental wellness company that aims to empower entrepreneurs and high performers with supplements to enhance their productivity and minimize their pain points. Flow is their flagship product, which is a ready-to-drink powder that comes in a 30-day stick pack that works as an energy and focus enhancer. Flow was created to improve your focus, increase your alertness, enhance your creativity so you can tackle the prime tasks of the day while staying in a creative flow state. On top of that, there are no energy crashes with their product flow, which means an improved mood and enthusiastic approach to business. These benefits are a supreme advantage for entrepreneurs and high performers to sustain their performance on a regular basis. Flow is an instant and sustained boost. It can be a replacement or enhancement for coffee so you no longer require many cups per day to combat lethargy and the sluggish part of the day just to stay on top of things. Flow will give you what you need to get your brain cells firing so you can optimize your work results, hit your goals, have more time doing what you love, and spending time with loved ones so you can seize each and every day. When you sign up for Seize's VIP list, you get first access and can receive 50% off the pre-launch offer, you guys. That is half off during this pre-launch offer. Just head over to Seize.life forward slash the business method. That's Seize, S-I-I-Z, Seize.life forward slash the business method to get your discount. We'll put all the links in the show notes, you guys. And now let's hop back into the interview. I want to highlight some of the tips in the book. You've got some really, really, really juicy tips throughout the book. And a couple hit home for me, actually a handful. And I like to kind of run through these, John. Uh, The first tip when building a company to sell is don't generalize, specialize. So if you focus on doing one thing well and hire specialists in that area, the quality of your work will improve and you will stand out amongst your competitors. 
I didn't learn this lesson for a while because when I was a new entrepreneur, I was just scraping to get by. It was like whatever can bring money in to keep the bills paid and keep going and going and going. Now that I specialize in things, and if, first off, it feels so much better because it doesn't feel like I'm spinning a thousand plates all the time. Sure, um, yeah. it, it closes. It actually closes off my mind to opportunities that I know that I'm not open to. And that at times can be a very, very good thing because if you want to focus on one thing and build that business or that mountain or whatever it is in your life, even a relationship, you're focused on one thing. And that's the, that's getting all, most all your time and energy. So don't, if we can elaborate a little bit more, John, on, on the importance of not generalizing and specializing in a company. Yeah. Two things. I agree with everything you just said. Two additional thoughts. One is that when you generalize, it is very hard to build a company beyond you because it's hard to hire employees. Mm-hmm. You may be a, an industry expert. You're, let's say you're an SEO person. You, you've understood Google's black box. Well, that's fantastic. But hiring other people to do a broad variety of things is very difficult. Whereas if you specialize in one thing, you can start to break down each activity and teach other people to to do the work. And that's when you can get some of the leverage and pull yourself out. So I think the hidden reason to specialize, sure, the marketing point of differentiation is important, but there's also that building a team underneath you, which is virtually impossible if you offer a wide swath. The other thing I think more importantly, if we're thinking about the end game and building to sell is that when an acquirer looks at your company, it's like a consumer when we used to remember in the old days when we used to buy cable television, you like wanted ESPN and, and maybe a couple of other channels and they make you buy like 300 channels. And you're like, no, 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 all I want is ESPN. And they're like, no, no, you got to buy all 300. Mm-hmm. Well, now, of course, they've decoupled them, right? You can buy ESPN plus or Disney or whatever, whatever you want. Acquirers want to buy one thing right? Mm. They want to buy a company that they couldn't easily build on their own. Mm. And if you've wandered off chasing revenue and diluted yourself by offering a bunch of me too products and services, oftentimes acquirers either won't buy your company or will deeply discount it in their view because they don't want a bunch of services they could easily offer. They want the one killer app, the one thing that they find hard to compete with. I remember uh, I interviewed a woman named Stephanie Breedlove. She built a wonderful company uh, called Breedlove and Associates. They did payroll for parents who had a nanny to pay. They're actually based, no, not in Austin. They're, they're in Texas. Anyways, she built this company up to 300 grand in revenue. Uh-huh. And she was just her and one employee. And she was finding it harder to find parents who have a nanny to pay. And so she looked at some consultants, she read some books, she went to some conferences, and they all said, no, like virtually every one of them said, it's way cheaper and easier for you to go cross sell your existing customers a new service than it is to go find new customers. Mm -hmm. And so like, she's thinking, okay, wow, I've got all these busy parents who have a nanny. So what else do they need? Like they need like lawn care services and they need meal delivery services and they need all sorts of things that busy parents need. Right. And then she realized that's not why she got into business. She has no point of differentiation on lawn care services. Right. She focused on payroll. Long story short, she decides to focus instead on just doing payroll, found it harder to build her company, took her 25 years to build it in $9 million in revenue. So it's not like, this isn't Netflix, this isn't Google, this isn't Tesla, this is a $9 million company over 25 years. Okay. She turns around and says, okay, well, who's out there that would want to buy this company? She sees care.com. They're the Angie's list of care providers. I don't know if you have, do you have kids, Chris. No, I don't. 
Okay, so if you had kids, you probably don't care. Plug in your zip code and it'll basically generate a list of five-star rated babysitters in your local market. Okay. Right? And so you can trust in hiring a babysitter. Well, they had 7 million subscribers. That's 7 million parents who are going to need to pay their babysitter or their nanny. Mm-hmm. And so Breedlove says, why don't you buy my company? I've got $9 million of revenue on 10,000 customers. If you buy us... And 1% of your 7 million by our payroll services, that's a company seven times our size. Yeah. Now think about this. If she had wandered off into meal delivery services and lawn care, like care.com would have passed instantly. But because she did one thing better than anybody else, payroll for nannies, they were interested. So much so that she, they, sold, they bought her business, this little $9 million company that no one really thought much about, <laughs> for $54 million. Oh, oh nice. Nice. Six times revenue. Like most companies traded a multiple of EBITDA, right? Yeah. Uh, they traded a multiple of revenue. And again, the point I'm trying to drive home is that specializing gives you marketing differentiation, obviously. It also mm-hmm. helps you scale beyond just your personal involvement. But more importantly than all that stuff, when it comes to selling your company, nobody's going to want to buy a hodgepodge bunch of products and services that have no point of differentiation. Yeah. They're instead going to want to buy one thing that does one thing better than anybody else. Yes. That's what makes your company irresistible. Yes. I love it. That uh, takes me to the next tip, which is really powerful as well. It's relying too heavily on one client is risky and will run off potential buyers. So I've seen this with many entrepreneur friends. Um, you know, maybe they have an agency or uh, a company and their one client is 40, 50, even 60, sometimes even up to a hundred percent. And it's a lot, you know, and if that person in COVID hit, and I know a lot of people that were freaking out because if they lost that one client and many did, there goes 60, whatever percent of the revenue, mass, uh, the vast majority of it. So you mentioned that no one client should make up more than 15% of revenue, correct? Yeah. And that's a ballpark. I mean, uh, okay. you know, less is less is better, but, but 15% is probably a point where an acquirer is going to raise a red flag and say, okay, let's talk more about this customer. Okay. Makes sense. I like that one a lot. Tip number three, owning a process makes it easier to pitch and puts you in control. So be clean about what you're selling to potential customers and it'll be more likely, uh, they'll be more likely to buy your product. And so when people are the main asset of a business, they can, they can come and go every night, but, uh, and the business won't be worth very much, but when you have a product, so could you give an example of this? You could use the book or any other business you've come across John, when um, you focus on creating, going from a service into creating a service business uh, into a product business and not a physical product, but productized. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So yeah, the, the idea is to productize your service so that it feels like a thing. Uh, if you're, if you're selling a service, you're selling hourly and which is terrible, you know, race to the bottom, et cetera, you can't scale. Uh, Equally, if you're just defining yourself as your profession, so you rock up and say, I'm a graphic designer, I'm a copywriter, I'm a, I'm a massage therapist, I'm a, you know, an electrician, you're inviting competition, right? Because mm-hmm. now all of a sudden you put a label on yourself and you can co- be compared while you're an electrician. You're 75 an hour, I got another guy over here who's 60 an hour. So can you match? And you're commoditizing yourself when you define yourself by the industry that you're in. And so instead, what you want to do, I think, is own a productized service. You are the creator of such and such service or product. And a good example of this would be Darren Root. So Darren ran an accounting firm. Uh, like all accounting firms, they did you know tax returns and audits and you know a bunch of stuff. And none of it was 
really that scalable. Oftentimes it came back to Darren doing the pitch because his name was on the door. It was called Root and Associates. It's Darren Root. So everybody wanted to talk to Darren. Mm -hmm. So he decided to rebrand and rethink about it. And what he learned was a lot of his best clients were medical practitioners. So they were doctor's offices, dentists, uh, you know, chiropractors, et cetera. And he interviewed them and, and found out about their challenges. One of the challenges is that they had front desk people that were underemployed. They were paying their front person, the person who greets people and does the bookkeeping and so forth, like 50, 60, 70, $80,000 a year. Yet they were kind of underemployed. They were working 25 hours a week. And so it was this weird, like kind of not getting your money's worth. And he said, well, yeah. what if we took all that off your plate and offered you a service where we'll do the bank rec, we'll do the credit card payments, we'll do virtually everything your back office support person would generally do. But instead of hiring the full time, you could just hire us for you know, $800, $1,000, a $1,200 a month. And it, was re it resonated strongly. And so mm -hmm. he created something called BOSS. BOSS stands for the back office support system. And you hire, you, hire, you buy the BOSS system and what you're basically buying is a productized service. Essentially, you're a chiropractic clinic and you don't want a back office person, you hire BOSS and they do all of your bank recs, they do all your credit card processing and all the basic stuff. And now Darren doesn't offer accounting services. It's not an accounting firm anymore. All they do is the boss system. And now he can sell it as the boss system. It's not, they're not hiring Darren Root anymore. Mm -hmm. They're not asking for his references or his recommendations. They're buying this thing called the boss system. And that's the difference between you know, having a, 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 an hourly fee that you charge and defining yourself as, quote, an accountant or a dentist or whatever, and productizing your service. And ultimately, Darren sold his company. Never would have happened had he not productized, in my view, what he was creating. I'd like to ask you, what if, so I want to talk about personal brands real quick. And sure. so there's a lot of back and forth about like a, a lot of people have created a personal brand and they get to the point where they want to remove themselves and try and sell it or just le at least remove themselves. Um, and it's very difficult for them. But also at the same time, I love personal brands. Like I think we've had a lot of personal brand, uh, very successful entrepreneurs on the podcast. Um, and so, and we've talked a lot and dissected the, the art of that. So what if you are, you do have a successful personal brand and you get to the point where like, uh, I didn't realize this is going to get so big. Um, I kind of want to sell this thing, but I can't because it's my face all over it. What do you do? What, what are the, what do you recommend, John? Yeah, I think you always want to have your company brand. Even if you've got a personal brand, your company brand needs to be stronger and your personal brand should be in support of your company brand, not the other way around. Mm. We, we all know, we all put, you know, personal brands out there. Oprah comes to mind, incredible personal brand. Mm -hmm. She happens to own a company called Harpo. I'm not sure Harpo is worth very much without Oprah mm -hmm. because Oprah's the, the lead brand. I could maybe make the case that even though Elon is a huge successful entrepreneur, Tesla's a bigger brand in the marketplace. And yeah. a lot of what he does is in support of Tesla as a company. Um, so I think you, what you want to do is is make sure that even if you if you do build a personal brand that you that it's in service of a company and that the company is distinctly branded from you. It's mm -hmm. not, you know, it's not Elon Musk and Associates. <laughs> you know, it's 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 a different. So I think those are some of the things you can you can you can you can try. But it but it's tricky and and the bigger your personal brand, uh, the more 
difficult it is to differentiate it. The other thing I would say is that you, you really want to have a, uh, a, a distinct sales funnel, marketing funnel that is not dependent on you. So if you have to pick up the phone and call the prospect, if you have to run the webinar, if you have to do whatever, it's, it's not a scalable business. So I'd be looking for ways to make sure that that, that you can demonstrate to an acquirer that you have a, a funnel that is scalable beyond you. Yeah. Uh, meaning you could buy ads that, you know, they, they convert at this rate, they, you know, then they become paid customers and, and you can show that that all happens without you personally showing up. Yeah. Next tip here, John, when you have a product or productized service, people expect to pay in advance. Well, not always with the productized service, but people expect to pay in advance. Make your service a product or productized so they can pay in advance. And I've seen a lot of people struggle with this, trying to collect invoices, trying to collect payments over the months and years. We recently had, I don't know if you're familiar with Alex Hermosi. We had him on. No. Okay. Founder of Gem Launch, built it to a nine-figure company. And when he realized this, it changed everything for him. So he had a, I think it was a 90-day 90, 90 money-back guarantee, charged everybody up front. I think it was around $25,000 at the time to help them launch their gyms. And when he started doing that, he did exactly, I think unconsciously, what you're talking about, creating a productized service from the service of just going in, helping somebody launch their gym, and then take payment after 30 days after they've started to get results. So that I think is is really important because I think it changes, and maybe you'll agree with this, it it probably changes somebody, it shifts their mindset of like what to expect. Like we're all in, we've dove in, we've paid this person, this company, this bunch of money. So we're going to work with them to get the best result possible as opposed to let's just hire John and just see what he can do. You know what I mean? Yeah, totally. I mean, it, it totally changes the nature of the game for sure. Again, if you were billing by the hour or the project, it only makes sense to charge when you're done the work, right? Like yeah. by the, how many hours am I working? Well, it depends on how long the job is. And so, so you, you effectively have a negative cash flow cycle. The opposite, when you productize and you say, we have the boss system and it costs a thousand dollars a month, it makes sense to bill upfront because it's a thing. I mean, you think about other things you consume in your daily life. When you go to Costco and you buy a bottle of peanut butter off the shelf, like you're not expecting to eat it and then pay for it. Like that's yeah. not the way it works. You <laughs> buy it and then you pay and then you, you consume it. And so I think, you know, productizing and then charging up front is a big deal. And yes, it does what you described, Chris, the idea of like it, it gets people to bet in, take more, more effort, and they're they're more focused on the on the on the the kind of onboarding when they've when they bought it up front. It yeah. also, I mean, practically speaking, just revolutionizes your business model, right? So if you're charging up front, you know, you can grow without necessarily taking on outside funding because you're using your your customers money effectively to scale your company. So uh, it, it can allow you to grow without having to give up a lot of equity along the way, which is obviously great for, for folks who don't want to get diluted. That'd be great if we could go to grocery stores or, or uh, restaurants and then eat the food and then pay them based on how good their food is, like yeah, the service. Yeah, and everything. Yeah, 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 yeah. 
All right, next tip. Don't be afraid to say no to projects. A lot of entrepreneurs uh, have a hard time doing this, saying no. And the more we say no, the more we specialize, right? So prove you're serious about specialization by turning down work that falls outside of your area of expertise. The more you say no, the more referrals will come your way from the people that need what you have. Um, yeah, I learned this one the hard way. I, me too. You know, me too. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. How'd you learn it? It was like, so I, I ran a business called the Entrepreneur House, and we would do these entrepreneur houses, business accelerators around the world. And um, yeah, thanks. And it was just curtailing to everybody's little needs. You know, it's like, oh, we need this. I'm like, oh, okay, I'll get on it. And this and this and this. And it's just like to the point where I was exhausted and stressed and pulling my hair out. And, I, and, and really to the point where I didn't want to scale that company anymore. I didn't know if I really cared to work in it anymore. So mm. that's, that was my lesson. It was miserable, <laughs> but it took yeah. a while, like it took a lot of frustration to get over that and to figure out what I could accept and what I couldn't. Yeah. I, I used to run this research company that, 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 uh, that Perry gave me, you know, the cold shower on in the beginning where, where it wasn't valuable. And so one of the things he suggested was to create uh, a subscription model, stop selling projects and time and, and, and start productizing your service and doing one thing and sell it on subscription. So mm -hmm. I went out and I talked to our best clients. These were, you know, obviously big, you know, big banks and technology companies. And we said, look, we're, we're thinking of doing the subscription service. And they're like, Oh, that's interesting. Um, but you know, for now we'll just keep doing you know, buying the custom stuff from you. Right. So, so I'm like, Oh, but the subscription service is going to be great. You should you know, buy that because it's going to be, have all these benefits. And they'd be like, yeah, God, I will keep that in mind. But right now we're going to hire you to do X, Y, Z project. And, you know, for the first six months, I think we might be, maybe sold like four or five subscriptions. And, you know, it was the worst of both worlds because we had both of these businesses running in parallel. Right. So yeah. we did the custom work and then we were trying to get the subscription. You had to fund the subscription offering, but you know, keep, and so our resources were, were, were stripped bare and, and divided. And ultimately, you know, we decided to stop the subscription offering. We just couldn't get it off the ground because mm -hmm. not enough of our customers could have bought in. And, you know, we went back to doing project work and licked our wounds and, and kind of rejigged it for a couple of years, just thinking about like, what mistakes did we make? And well, why did this not work? And what I came to realize I was kind of half pregnant, right? Like I was sort of in, but I wasn't kind of, I was sort of on the fence and I was one, you know, my cake and eat it too, as the expression goes. So, so we relaunched it two years later and we went to the same customers, Microsoft, Bank of America, all these big guys. And we said, look, we love you but we've done some real soul searching and we've realized the best way we can serve you is through this subscription model. And mm -hmm. so as a result, we're going to stop offering custom consulting. You can't hire us by the hour, by the project anymore. And I'm telling you, Chris, the response was, was 180 degrees different. Mm -hmm. All of a sudden they kind of looked into the whites of our eyes and saw that we were serious, that we were willing to bet our relationship effectively on the subscription model. And all of a sudden, these, these companies that had sort of give, paid us lip service but weren't serious, all of a sudden kind of sat forward in their seat and started to ask some serious questions like, okay, well, what's entailed in the subscription uh, offering? Uh, how many licenses can we get? Uh, how, you know, how many years do we have to commit to? What, what are the, what's, the, you know, what's the research about? All these questions were buying trigger questions. They were, they were signs that they were serious. Ultimately, we got most of our clients to move and it really set us you know, onto this trajectory of building a sellable company but it, it didn't happen without 
sort of saying no and, and yeah. stopping doing all the stuff that people wanted us to do. And so I'm a big believer, uh, in, in the importance of saying no, even at the expense of short-term revenue. Yeah, I, I agree. I heard this quote, I think from Noah Kagan, and, uh, it was the more people you turn off, the more people you turn on. And, <laughs> so true. Yeah. I've never heard that, but that's very, very good. Uh, I love that. Yeah, I do too. Okay, just a couple more tips. Tip number nine here, hire people who are uh, good at selling products, not services. Hmm. So these people will be better able to figure out how your product can meet a client's needs rather than agreeing to customize your offering to fit what the client wants. So even if you have a service-based business, you still hire, you recommend hiring people that are good at selling products, right? Yeah, I mean, and, and again, this this comes firsthand experience. We used to have you know, we thought of ourselves as a professional services organization. And so we had lots of people that were good at selling custom solutions, right? So mm -hmm. what do you do as a custom solution salesperson? You, you follow a solution-based selling, right? Where you, where you go in and you ask a bunch of questions of the customer, you understand what their pain points are. You use top, you know, top, uh, what's it called? Um, uh, oh, I've forgotten spin selling and you try to understand their needs and provide a custom solution every time. Mm -hmm. And if you've been trained in that technique, it makes you want to customize everybody's solution for the unique needs of every client. It's kind of how you, you, you earn your keep in that space. Yet the best salespeople in my view to hire are ones who have had the discipline of having to sell a product. Because when you have a product, a physical product, something you could pick up with your hands, a set of AirPods, and you have to describe the features and benefits of that without changing the product, that's a different skill set. Mm -hmm. It means that you have the mental gymnastics to show how the fixed product can meet the unique needs of a customer, mm -hmm. as opposed to trying to fix and change the product. And those people aren't in professional services organizations. They're not at advertising agencies. They're not at consulting firms. The people who have the skills and the chops to do that have sold things, things you can pick up with your hand. And that's the difference. So, and by the way, they're 10 times cheaper than going to Accenture and McKinsey and Ogilvy and Mather and trying to hire those guys and gals away. They'll, you know, they'll cost you a fortune. Whereas the people who have sold things in, 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 in malls at kiosks are probably 10 times better at selling the thing that you want to sell. They're hustlers too. You know, if you're selling in a mall and a kiosk and, and doing <laughs> successfully, you're hustling. Um, I've you're met a lot of, sure. yeah, a lot of people that have grown up in, in third world countries and because mm -hmm. of the mindset of selling in third world countries, they have to hustle. Um, we interviewed somebody recently, Shien Shieni, who um, created a new tropic, one of the first new tropics that sold uh, over a billion dollars by the time he was 23. Wow. And um, he grew up in, I believe it was Iran. Um, and he was on the street hustling as a kid, you know, selling tomatoes, telling whatever they were selling it. And he was doing it with his parents. And so brought those hustling skills over to the United States when they came and applied those to business and did very well for himself. It's one of the, it's one of the, the, the constant struggles I have because I, I constantly ask myself the question, can you teach entrepreneurship? Um, you know, I've got kids and, and they've expressed interest in maybe doing something independently, some, some, some sort of business of their own. And they've grown up in a different environment where they're, you know, they haven't had to hustle on the streets as teenagers, right? Like it, mm -hmm. they hustle in their own ways, but it, but it does make me occasionally wonder, like, 
is that mutually exclusive? Is it possible to create the drive and the hustle, to use your words, um, that makes a business successful without the pain associated with deprivation? Mm-hmm. And I don't know if it is. Um, jury's out. I mean, there's lots of schools, Babson College in the United States, uh, Indiana. There's lots of universities out there that will claim to be able to teach entrepreneurship. Yeah. Um, and I think they can teach the technical skills for sure. And I don't know if they can teach the hustle. I don't know if anybody can teach the hustle. That's uh, That remains to be seen. Yeah, that's a good question if it's nature or nurture. I, I met one guy who um, has his kids go sell water on the beach, even though you know they go to the beach, I think, in South Carolina for their vacation and they said you want some extra spending money you know just go go sell waters on the beach to awesome. t- try and create at least a sales mindset if it's not at least the hustle yeah no it's awesome yeah okay and then one other thing here tip 11 you said you need two years of financial statements before you sell so people um it's a good reminder to realize that you need two years of financial statements with the product or productized service um um, with your business built to sell in a business model that's built to sell before you actually sell. And could you elaborate a bit on that more, John? Yeah, really just that any acquirer is looking to de-risk a company, right? I mean, that's their job is to, is to try to buy an asset that has some sort of reliable uh, you know, model to it, either revenue generating or profit generating. Mm-hmm. And the more you can demonstrate a history of being able to do that, the better. So COVID's kicked the crap out of a lot of businesses. A lot of service companies have had just horrible, horrible years. And so it's going to be tough to sell a company when you when you kind of look up and say, here's my profit and loss statement. Yeah, we didn't do great in 2000, but you know, 2012 or 2022, sorry, 2020 wasn't a great <laughs> year, but 2021 is better. Like that's going to be a tough narrative because they're going to say, okay, you're, so you're susceptible to outside environments, pandemics, for example, and other sort of economic environments. And so uh, and equally, f- businesses that are involved in technology that have had incredibly good years, Zoom and Peloton come to mind. Is that sustainable? Is an acquirer is going to view that? And that's why Peloton stock is off about 30% in the last you know, six months is pe- people are saying, yeah, well, that's great. We're in a pandemic where everybody's working out at home, but does that play uh, in, in a normal environment? And so I think the more you can demonstrate uh, consistent profitability, consistent revenue growth, uh, it just de-risks it for an acquirer, mm-hmm. and and that's not to say you can't sell your company if you're if you're you know you had a bit of a roller coaster over the last couple of years. I think what it does say though is, is you probably have to put some of your proceeds at risk. Um, they'll probably use an earnout structure, mm-hmm. uh, especially if you're in the service business of any sort, where you know you you get some money up front, but then you get the second or third tranche of your your proceeds from selling your company, which are at risk in order you know, to, uh, and you've got to reach a set of goals in the future in order to mm-hmm. get that second or third payment. So that's a, a common technique acquirers use if they're eh, not totally sure uh, about the, uh, the longevity of your, your revenue or your profits. Awesome. Okay, we're gonna do some Q&A here. John has a question. John, you wanna come in and turn on your video and unmute yourself? Yes, thank you so much, Chris and John. Welcome, read your man. book years ago. Uh, I love it. I started at a hotel working for the Four Seasons. I now run my own law firm. Oh, good for you. Yeah. So my question was about you know some of the traps that owners can get into as they build out the systemization, and really it's getting distracted with things that clients don't want. Like oh, you know the example I think of is there's a dentist down the street 
that'll char that says on their lit up billboard, braces, $4,250 plus free AirPods. The AirPods don't help. And it's not that they're wrong, but it's just not what the client's coming for. They probably pay $4,250. What are some of the things that you've seen business owners build into systemizations that get really distract them from their systemized, uh, like their, their niche focusing? Uh, I'm really interested in seeing kind of one of those other mistakes and how can we avoid those? Wow. I think great, great question. And, and, uh, thanks. I think probably the biggest thing I see is, is trying to, to do too much. I think people, and I was, I was a victim of this as well. When they look at all the things that, that you want to do and, and all the reasons people buy from you today, it can be tempting to try to come up with a product or service that, 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 everyone will want or that includes everything that you do. And of course, that's just a recipe for kind of a diluted offering and, and one that's, that's not really going to differentiate. So I would just fight the temptation to, to do everything. I think the better way to do it, and this is particularly if you want to move to a subscription model or any kind of recurring revenue model, rather than trying to figure out, okay, what do all my customers need on a regular basis, which is the way most people make that shift is they say, okay, what, what does everybody need on a recurring basis? The best thing to do, I think, is to first focus on segmenting your customers and understanding at a segment level what they need and what their recurring needs are, and then build out a recurring read by segment. And so equally, if you're productizing a service, I wouldn't try to productize a service for every one of your customers' needs. I think it makes sense to bucket them by the reasons they come to you. And in a law firm, you know, you probably got divorce cases and family cases and criminal cases and commercial real estate, whatever. But my guess is that the reasons they come to you is, is going to be different. And the productized service will likely be different based on each segment. Does that make sense? It does. And I mean, again, we're, I'm pretty niched down in, into just planning, but it still makes sense. I see different stripes of clients and thinking about it as just, you know, again, narrowing it, taking smaller risks. Yeah. Thanks for your question. All right. Thanks, John. Next, we have Dan. Come on in, Dan. What's your question? Hey. Yeah. Thank you to the both of you for such a great conversation so far. We talked a lot about making the asset itself sellable. My question for you, John, would be, What's your best advice for entrepreneurs who are currently speaking with acquirers, potential acquirers, and soliciting offers and starting that stage, which is something that I'm currently in right now. So this would be a relevant topic. Yeah, Dan, it's a huge topic. Um, and good luck. Well, first of all, congratulations. Very few business owners ever get to the stage you've gotten. So you should feel really proud of what you've accomplished. Um, building a sellable business is a huge achievement. So congratulations. I think what you want more than anything else is multiple offers. And I think what the acquirer is going to want is exactly the opposite. So the, what they're going to want to do is lock you in by getting you to sign a letter of intent with a no shop clause. Have you gotten any of those yet, Dan? I have. Yeah. Okay. Okay. And, and it would have included a no shop clause, presumably that, that, that they ask you not to negotiate Correct. with anybody else. Have you signed one of those yet? Uh, yes. Okay. Okay. All right. With well, that's okay. <laughs> What's that? With a trusted acquirer, but this is, uh, this is why I wanted to ask you. Yeah. 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 Okay. Um, yeah. Well, I think the, 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 the key is to try to 
whenever possible, get multiple bidders before that. When when you have signed that, you you've you've given up a bit of your negotiating leverage, but not all of it. It's likely got a an expiry date. It's probably sixty days or something like that. They 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 have to to do the, the, the so expect them to uh, likely want to protract that or extend that. They'll come to you five days before closing. They'll say, oh, we haven't finished our due diligence quite yet. Can we have another 30 days? That's a point where you might uh, think about pulling up and saying, actually, no, we had an agreement, et cetera. I think I'm, you know, this is a high stakes negotiation. So you should have a, an advisor at your, you know, at your disposal and you don't want to overplay your hand. But uh one of the worst things that an acquirer does is they get you to sign a letter of intent and then they retrade and retrading is where they lower the price that they offered you in the, in signing the letter of intent in large part because they know you signed the letter of intent and have kind of emotionally checked out and have wanting to sell your business so they come to you 3 4 days before closing and saying Dan we love you you know we love you but we found something in due diligence so we're going to we're going to drop our price by 20%. And that's a tactic that a lot of them use, uh, in my view, kind of uh, unethically. And so again, that's a point for you to say, hey, do I want to continue to consummate this deal if they're playing the kind of retrading game? Um, those are those are some of the tricks that they usually play. It's extending due diligence. It's retrading. Um you know, working capital is also going to be a big thing for you, Dan. So, um, working the working capital calculation, you're going to want to pay tech, you know, close attention to. It's the second most important number on the document. Um, you know, the first is obviously the price they're willing to pay you. The second is is how much of your cash you get to leave in the company or have to leave in the company, how much you can pull out, and that can make a huge difference into how, in terms of how much you actually take away from the deal. Um, stock versus asset purchase, you know, I don't mean to give a, a huge plug, but if you put your address, if you get your address to Chris, your mailing address, I'll send you a copy of this book. It's called the art of selling your business, probably worth reading, um, right now, <laughs> because it's basically how to punch above your weight when you go to negotiate the sale of your company. So it's kind of the, the, the core blocking and tackling strategies of dealing with an acquirer. So you, I think you'll find it helpful. Just drop your mailing address into the chat or give it to Chris or whatever. And we'll, I'll get you a copy of it. I appreciate that. Thank you, John. Yeah, no worries. Did you have another question, Dan? Are you good? I did. Go ahead. Kind of think, thinking about the next steps. What do you recommend to entrepreneurs post sale? Don't buy anything stupid. I think one of the most common things, like I interview people, this podcast that you built cell radio where I interviewed them and I kind of talk to them a life about life after their exit. And inevitably they go invest in a bunch of companies because they think they're hot and they, you know, they've got the Midas touch and they inevitably lose much of what they created by, by, by angel investing in a bunch of stuff they know nothing about. So I think the best advice I've ever heard is take the money and put it in the bank for a year and don't do anything with it. Don't buy Bitcoin, don't buy, don't buy anything, don't buy Tesla, don't buy anything. <laughs> and just let it sort of you know, marinate there for a while until you sort of get used to it and then start to think about how you want to use, use it. Um, I've heard the best way uh, to make a million dollars as an angel investor is to start with 10 million. And so <laughs> I think Angel investing is is not something I would recommend, certainly in the first year after you sell. I think just let it sort of thing. The other thing we talk a lot about 
um, we have a tool called Prescore, and Prescore stands for Personal Readiness to Exit. And and what we found is that many entrepreneurs unfortunately regret their decision to exit a year after selling. It's like seventy four percent have regret. And when we when we looked at why that was, in many cases they had more push factors than pull factors. So push factors are the things that make you want to sell your company, red tape, competitors, legislation, you know, employees. Those are all the reasons you want to sell your company. Pull factors are the reasons or the things you want to go do next, start another business, start a charity, sail around the world, whatever it is. You want more pull factors than push. And, and because that's going to be the recipe for, for, for a, a business without exiting a business without regret. Um, if you're interested, episode 100 of Built to Sell Radio is, is the single most listened to episode of all time. It's with a guy named Sean Oshman. And he had an IT services business, two or $3 million in revenue. On his 39th birthday, he woke up and said, okay, I, I'm sick of living in Denver. I want to go live on a sailboat. And so he hired a business broker and he got an offer of, I think between two and three times profit or SDE is what brokers refer to uh, a profit. And he sold his company and on his 40th birthday, he bought a boat and, and I was interviewing him and he had, he was on his boat. And I said, but Sean, I mean, come on, you, you sold your business for two or three times profit. I mean, it's not a huge multiple. It's kind of an average, you know, it's ho-hum kind of multiple. And he's like, yeah, but John, you're missing the point. I'm like, okay, what's the point? He's like, I live on a sailboat. <laughs> and he, he was sort of driving home the point that while value is important, what you want to go do next is probably even more important. But really getting clear on what the next thing is, I think will, will be really helpful for you as uh, you transition the emotional roller coaster, psychological roller coaster from owner to, uh, to exited founder. Good luck, Dan. John, uh, that's really good advice, but I got to admit, it'd be really hard not to buy some cryptocurrency after getting a large, large chunk pay. (laughs) Don't get me started on the crypto nonsense. Oh, God, here we go. I can tell this is going nowhere fast. Uh, All right, we we have Wes up next. Wes, come on in, buddy. Hey, it's been great, John. Loved the book and not too far away from you in Hamilton. Uh, Hamilton, Ontario. Yeah, yeah. Wow. Okay. Comments. So enjoying the gloomy day too. Yeah, welcome <laughs> yeah. neighbor. <laughs> totally. Um, so yeah, we operate a training business where we help SaaS businesses basically build a product that sells itself with freemium or free trial models. Uh, so it's like packaged training. And right now it's all like kind of like one-off training sales, uh, four-week programs. And I'm trying to like wrestle with this idea of like, how to create that recurring product. And you mentioned something really cool, recurring needs. And I'm wanting to, to hear your thoughts. I'm like, how to dissect that? How do you discover, like, what are some of those big recurring needs that you could create that kind of subscription product around? Wow. Um, I, again, I think the most important thing to do from the beginning is to segment and segment your customer's based on buying behavior or, or reason they buy from you. Um, you know, I, 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 in the automatic customer, which is a book I wrote after built. So I, I wrote about this company called H bloom that sells flowers on subscription. Yep. And you think, well, like who would ever buy flowers on subscription? Cause most flowers are bought like mother's day, Valentine's day, right. weddings, graduations, whatever. The first thing they did was they figured out who has a recurring need for flowers. And they figured out that there was this tiny little sliver of the market and they were high end, 
kind of five-star hotels that need flowers regularly because when they you show up at a five-star hotel, you want to justify the $500 a night you're paying for that. So they have fancy flowers on the reception table, right? It makes you feel like you're staying in a great hotel. And they need those flowers replenished every two weeks. As a result, they sold a subscription to hotels. What they didn't do was try to create a recurring revenue stream for everybody who buys flowers. Mm -hmm. So Wes, for you, I'd be sitting there saying, okay, like who buys my training? So it's SaaS companies. Is it B2B or B2C? Is it, you know, be a large enterprise or be a small business? Is it, uh, you know, try to really segment niche mm -hmm. down to the people that have that recurring need for what you offer. Um, that's, that's probably where, you know, I'm thinking large enterprise sales organizations would have recurring needs because they have employees that come in and out. Whereas small one and two person companies, I'm guessing would have a one-off need, but may not recur. Again, I don't know your business, Wes, so I don't want to yeah, yeah. speak, but, but the segmentation pieces, I think is really important. Okay. Awesome. Thanks, John. You good, Wes? Yeah. Anything else? Uh, I think that was the main one. Just more okay. customer research sounds like. <laughs> okay. Segmentation in particular. Right. Yes. So homogeneous kind of buying behaviors. Good luck. Thanks, Wes. Patrick, come on in, my friend. Yes. Hello, John. Patrick, how are you? Good. I'm in my 21st year of having my own company and thinking about things like selling. Not ready to and not really pulled to the next thing yet, but I have been going through the process of chopping up my business into a couple different parts that over 21 years, you kind of get pulled in different directions and you have all this, you know, legacy clients and so forth. My business is essentially a consulting one, but um, services and e-commerce and online space. So I think I've chopped up my business into a couple different pieces, one of which is very much a productized service. But I've also read and listened to some compelling critiques of the ways in which those productized services can inevitably prompt you to focus on efficiency in the delivery of that service, which means you get away from that perfect fit with a client. And, you know, for better or worse, for example, I have a client today I've had for 18 years. And this is an e-commerce company that started um, in the middle of nowhere, Montana with a small retail shop and now has multiple millions of online revenue for a global product, you know, business. That's a great case study. But over those 18 years, I've, you know, I've weaved and um, stayed with them in various capacities. And so I clearly want to focus and chop up my business into a couple of clear offerings that can be repeatable, that I can train people to sell and position and so forth. But there is something to be said for having a perfect fit with a client and really having a premium price that you command as an expert. And I guess I'm just curious, as I look at kind of reserving one part of my business to be at that premium, perfect fit kind of offer. And, and some of the people that I listen to, for example, a guy named Blair Enns, um, another guy named David C. Baker, they speak to agencies and services firms. They have a podcast called Two Bobs. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, one of the things they talk about is the number of employees you have relative to your revenue. And when you have a very premium positioning as an expert, you can have a business model with a very few number of employees relative to total revenue. And it's the inverse of that as you move towards more productized services. So I guess my question for you is, as you think about your experience looking at people sell businesses, do you have any examples or do you have any case to be made 
for something that is a premium service offering a perfect fit, call it a custom solution, something that is not productized. Um, do you have any examples of that nature of business that have been successfully sold? Um, I'm curious about that. Very rare. And, and usually those businesses are sold using an earnout. So David Baker is a, is a great consultant, works with a lot of advertising agencies and advertising agencies are usually bought and sold using an earnout five, seven years where the founders, the principals are locked in and their proceeds are, are largely tied to the transfer of that client over to a the acquirer. So in your case, this custom client with, with you've been with 18 years and you've got this great fit with, they're going to, they're going to say, great, Patrick, you know, we'd love to buy your business. We'll give you 30% up front. The other 70%, we're going to put contingent on you transferring that relationship up over to us in seven years. That's really hard for a lot of entrepreneurs to stomach. So I think I would go back to sort of what you're personally motivated to, to do. If you're personally motivated by, um, by the work and serving the client and you love the work itself, you find intrinsic value and enjoyment from it, then that might work really well for you because you're, you're happy to continue to work with that client years into the future. You feel confident in your ability to serve them and you don't mind an earnout as a, as a sort of mechanism. Um, if you're by contrast motivated to build, sell, and leave, and not have an earnout, uh, you're gonna you're gonna that client is really worthless. I don't mean to be as difficult as Perry was to me, but it's it's largely worthless to an outside acquirer because it's so highly customized, and and you are so personally tied to it, and so that's not going to be valuable to an acquirer again without an earnout. An earnout would would be fine, but but not like a, a sell and walk out the door. Whereas a productized service, one that is scaled, and revenue per employee is 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 important metric, especially for service businesses that sell on an earnout. Revenue per employee is is less important, I believe, than other metrics if it's if you're selling like a recurring revenue model, for example, uh, revenue per employee is a, is a proxy for profit, but it's not necessarily the most important metric. Does that help at all, Patrick, or is that? It is very helpful. Could you elaborate on what you just finished saying, which is, so if not revenue per employee, then what metrics are yeah, you Yeah, for a productized service, like lifetime value of your customer, LTV to CAC is another one. So LTV stands for lifetime value <clears> and CAC is customer acquisition costs. And so for in a recurring business model, most acquirers are looking for at least a three to one on that. So at least three times more revenue that you get from a client than it costs you to acquire her as a customer. Uh, you know, five, seven, eight to one is much better than three to one, but three to one is usually the threshold. So that's a more, it's, it's, a, it's an important metric for a lot of acquirers and some proxy of, you know, for that, you know, some, some acquirers look at it differently, but essentially it's, it's what is the lifetime value of a customer and how much does it cost us to win each one at scale? And when I say at scale, you know, it's one thing if, if you sell that product, that service to three of your buddies and you say, look at the cost to sell it is really cheap. That's not going to really impress an acquirer. What they want to know is can, what's the LTV to CAC at scale? So if you were to buy advertising and, you know, search terms and, and, and you have a funnel, like what does that funnel look like and how much does it cost to acquire a customer independent of Patrick? Do you know what I, do you know what I mean? Yes. That's going to be an important metric for, for a lot of acquirers. 
Thank you. I appreciate it. Yeah, no worries. Thanks for coming on, Patrick. <clears throat> okay, John, I have another question here. Sure. Um, if a service business charges a high ticket and upfront, but still very competitive, payment isn't related to the hours of work. It doesn't matter, or it doesn't do tons of customization and is scalable with a healthy profit margin. Does it still make sense to try and productize it versus like actually focusing on scaling it? So in this situation, it's a, a DFY recruitment service. And I know what DFY stands for. You, you, DIY or DFY? DFY. D. Uh, done for you. My, my, I've heard that, but I haven't yeah, heard the acronym. Done for okay, you. got it. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, what's the question again? I'm lost. A so does bit. it make so sense? Uh, does it still make sense to try and productize it versus focusing on scaling it in that situation? I, mean, I, I'm, I don't think they're mutually exclusive and I don't think they're, I think one is a prerequisite of the other. I think you want to productize so you're not competing. There's lots of other probably similar services out there or at least similar. I'm sure you consider them different and I'm sure yours is unique, but in the mind of the consumer, they probably aren't. They're probably like, yeah, like recruitment services. I think like doesn't LinkedIn do something like that. And I'm, I'm sure I've seen other stuff on Upwork. Like, Again, I know you wouldn't consider LinkedIn and Upwork to be direct competitors of yours, but in the mind of the consumer, they probably are on some level. And so I would love to see you invest first in productizing this service. So naming it, branding it, differentiating it from anyone else in the marketplace so that you've got a very distinct brand, point of differentiation, and then scale, as opposed to trying to scale using a generic terminology like DFY recruitment services, which is kind of categorizing you into a category. Now you're all of a sudden competing and getting commoditized on price. And so I would like to be, you know, blue ocean strategy, you know, category of one, you really want to have like, you own this, the category that you are competing in. So name it, brand it, own it, and then scale would be my advice. One of the things you recommended too is, is, don't product, uh, prioritize selling. And I think that's a shock for a lot of entrepreneurs when you, you Sorry, talk I recommended don't prioritize selling. What was it? Can you give me more context? On the, that? Okay. Yes. This was in, <laughs> this is in the show notes that they sent over that this, the agency sent over that booked you. So we're going to have to have a discussion with them. Anyway, it says, do not prior, prioritize selling. When you prioritize selling, you limit your business. Entrepreneurs frequently lean into a strength of their influence oh. to prioritize selling. Ring a bell. Uh, yeah. yeah um, you people me. in the yeah. brand. Yeah. Selling yeah, no, no. Them. I thought you meant don't prioritize selling your business. Uh, oh, yes, 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 yes. So, don't prioritize yeah. just focusing on sales, right? That's what you're talking yeah. about. Yeah, and certainly yeah. not ones where you personally are the chief salesperson. You know, for a lot of small businesses, they are the rainmaker, right? Like they're mm -hmm. the one who brings in the revenue, wins the new clients. And and that, again, can, can really juice your top line and make yourself feel good and get you on the Inc. 500 or whatever, but it doesn't make the value of your company much more. In fact, in many cases, it undermines the value of your business if you are the chief rainmaker. So you wanna, I think you wanna take those skills and transfer them uh, into the same skills, but into a, into marketing your company as an asset. And do we have time for a quick story, Chris? I don't know what mm -hmm. time it is. Let's do it, let's do it. So I was invited, this goes back 20 years ago, um, 
to something called the birthing of giants, which has the most pretentious name for a conference ever. <laughs> it, it, the it's burning? Now, it's been Burn, burning? Bur no, birthing. Birthing. Like okay. giving birth to yes. giants. Okay. So it was on the campus of MIT, the exec ed <laughs> campus of MIT. Uh, it, it's been since rebranded entrepreneurs master's program. But anyways, 60 entrepreneurs from all around the world were invited to this thing. I, I somehow made the cut and went to this thing. And I can remember it was this amazing amphitheater style seating classroom at MIT's executive education center. And we heard from all these incredible like thought leaders, Jack Stack came in and talked about employee ownership. Um, Pat Lincioni at the very beginning of his career, the five confessions of a leader, you know, that guy, the guy who talks about leadership, he came in and talked about just amazing. And that one of the last speakers came in and he just sold his company. Stephen Watkins is his name. And he said, okay, how many of you are involved in selling and marketing your product and service? And like, no word of a lie, Chris, like everyone's hand went in the air, all 60 mm -hmm. of us, right? And we're proud, like, like four-year-old girls at like Girl Scouts. We're like putting our hands <laughs> in the air saying like, pick me, pick me, I'm involved, I'm involved. And he said, okay, put your hands down. All of you have the right skills. You're selling the wrong product. You've got to hire salespeople to sell your product or service. Your job is to sell your company. And to this day, I remember the conversation because it was like I, I had I'd been playing like amateur baseball and all of a sudden I'd seen a glimpse at what professional baseball looks like. Yeah. It was completely revolutionary for me as an entrepreneur who thought my job was to build the top line of revenue in my company and it was okay that I was the, you know, the, the rainmaker and the driver of my business. To him saying, to hear him say, yeah, you got the right skills, like sales and marketing is, is a great set of skills to have, but you, you've got to invest them in building the value of your business, not finding the next customer. And, and that really changed a lot for me. And I, I, you know, people like Patrick and others that, that, that are going through this sort of, uh, this journey, it, it's, uh, it's important. I think it's great to have sales skills, but make sure you're spending them building the value of your companies, you know, designing your sales funnel, as opposed to going to talk to individual prospective customers. Yeah. Good point. Good point. One more thing, John, and we'll wrap up. You mentioned, and I believe you mentioned this actually in one of your other books, but talking about freedom points mm. and, um, we, we, I think we, as entrepreneurs, the vast majority of us get into entrepreneurship because we want more freedom. We want mm -hmm. more money. We want more liberty in our lives. Right. And it's so easy to get wrapped up into the job of being an entrepreneur or a business owner, the CEO or the head chief or rainmaker to the point where we lose sight of why we started this whole thing in the first place. So if you could just like dissect freedom points a little bit, so people understand mm -hmm. kind of that, uh, philosophy. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, the freedom point is the point at which the sale of your business, when you combine it with the assets you've created outside of your company, would give you enough wealth to essentially live for the rest of your life. It's where work becomes a choice, not a requirement. That's the freedom point. And for a lot of entrepreneurs, we kind of quietly, unconsciously surpass that. You know, in the beginning, your business is probably worthless, right? It's just you and, and an idea. But over time, if it does create some value, you've probably crested the freedom point where mm -hmm. selling it would, would give you freedom, allow you to not have to work again if you don't want to. And 
it's ironic that we we often sail right by that point without pausing and thinking, well, hold on a second, do I want to make this real? Because if you hold your company and don't sell when you crest the freedom point, effectively, you, like you're the blackjack player putting all his or her chips into the middle of the table, every hand, hmm. right? Because you never know what's around the bend when the next pandemic happens, God forbid, et cetera. And every day you hold your chips, uh, you're effectively risking freedom in return for something you may not aspire to have. I think Warren Buffett said the definition of insanity is risking what you crave for something you do not. Mm. So if you, at the end of the day, want to feel in your gut that you are free, that you don't have to work, you can work, but you don't have to. If you sold your company, you might achieve that. And, and, and if, if that's your aspiration for freedom, then I think it at least makes sense to have the conversation with yourself. Maybe now's the time. I, I remember I interviewed Rand Fishkin. Have you ever had Rand on the show, Chris? Uh-uh, no. Oh, gosh, you got to get Rand on the show. He wrote a great book called Lost and Founder. Okay. And he built a company called SEO Moz. And okay. SEO Moz is a software company in the SEO space, built it up to $5 million in revenue when he got an offer from Brian Halligan, who is the founder, co-founder of HubSpot. Mm-hmm. And Halligan was offering him $25 million of, of cash and HubSpot stock. Okay. And Rand thought, well, we're, on, we're at five now, but we're on our way to 10. And I should be able to get four times top line revenue for my SaaS company. So I want 40 million. And Halligan said, you're at five. I'm not going to give you 40 million. Take a hike. And they, <laughs> they parted ways. And, and Rand instead raised some venture capital. They insisted they invested in a bunch of products he knew nothing about. The business started to bleed cash. Rand started to spiral into a, a depressive episodes and was removed from the board by the VCs. Mm. The VCs uh, continued to run the company kind of into the ground, so to speak, although I think it, they've sort of now uh, righted it a bit. And I interviewed Rand after the fact. I said, what was that like? You know, at least you've still got your Moz stock that that's got to be worth the truckload. And he said, actually, John, it's it's probably not worth anything. I'm like, what do you mean anything? He's like, well, the VCs invested using preferred shares, which gives them a guaranteed preferred return before me as a common shareholder get anything. And based on the length of time they've held their shares, my common shares are probably worthless. Mm-hmm. Wow. And I said, but like, what's what would that offer from HubSpot be worth today, given that HubSpot stock has gone through the roof because of the IPO? And, so, and he said, John, it would be worth close to $200 million. Wow. <laughs> and, and that's what I mean by kind of riding it over the top. Like, as entrepreneurs, I think we all think our best days are ahead of us, right? Yeah. And, and there's always a, be, you know, a better option going forward. But I just think it's when you crest the freedom point and the sale of your business when you combine it with other assets is creates enough wealth for you to decide to work, not have to work. I think it's worth asking yourself the question. Um, like maybe now is the time. And, uh, and I think Rand's story is, is illustrative of that, but, but he's a great guest. I would certainly recommend you grab Rand. Check him out. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. I appreciate that. All right, John, this has been an incredible podcast and I know the, uh, live listeners have really, really enjoyed the Q and a session with you and got a lot from it. We're going to wrap up here. If people want to learn more about what you have going on, John, and about the book or the other books that you have, the podcast, where's the best place they can go to do that? Head over to builttosell.com slash method. 
Okay. So we put together a little kind of landing page for your listeners. Thank you. you. Can download the nine subscription models. Uh, there's a, a workbook that people like Dan, who is going through the selling process. Uh, it's an, it's a sort of a sister companion book to the art of selling your business. So it's free. Um, and just, yeah, built to sell.com slash method. Perfect. All right. Thanks, John. I really appreciate that. I recommend actually one of the listeners bought the book while we were on the podcast. <laughs> so you got another book sale coming there. He sent me uh, a message. Say, just bought the book. I'm like, great. That's <laughs> you awesome. sold one book today, John. <laughs> Mission accomplished. Yeah, success. My children will eat tonight. Yes, they will. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, thanks so much for coming on the show. I really appreciate it. You, yeah, you coming on and taking your time and then sharing with your audience uh, some of your wisdom. And then also writing this book. Again, it's on my top 15 business books now. And um, it's been an honor, man. Thank you so much. Thanks, Chris. It's good to be with you. Listeners, we're going to wrap up there. Thank you guys for tuning in once again. And we'll see you on the next episode. Goodbye, everybody. Hey, listeners. Thanks for joining us. And once again, we wanted to remind you about our adventures and trips for entrepreneurs in our private community. If you enjoy luxury trips to the Caribbean, going on bucket list adventures around the world, or just traveling to connect with other established entrepreneurs, then be sure to subscribe to our newsletter to stay connected at thebusinessmethod.com. That's thebusinessmethod.com. Thanks for joining the show today, and we'll see you on the next episode.